Hello, my name is Emma Watkins and you're listening to the first episode of Forgotten Convicts. This podcast series will bring to you the life stories of convicts who, after being transported to Australia for their crimes, then went on to be released from servitude and went on to die in pauper establishments. And these former convicts who went on to die in these pauper establishments in the colonies will be known as pauper emancipists. This is because they were paupers, meaning that they had no means of maintaining themselves. They were living in poverty and they were emancipists, meaning they were former convicts who had been freed by servitude. This series will extend beyond the life narrative and biographies of individual pauper emancipists to try and engage with the social and economic aspects of the colony. So really to look at some context. But in order to do that, this very first episode that you're listening to right now will introduce some of the key information. And this includes some brief history of transportation as a punishment of convicts themselves, of paupers, and their association with the various institutions, be they pauper institutions or convict institutions. So for those of you who know your convict history, please bear with me. But for those of you who are unfamiliar, this really is necessary information because it's important to have this um, background information about pauper emancipists in order to place them in their historical context. That way, when we go into more detail in later episodes, you'll have that information. But not to worry, though, um, for those of you who do know your convict history, um, this episode will also include a cradle-to-grave look at one um, particular pauper emancipist. So there is still a life history here. We'll be looking at Frederick Oddy, um, who was convicted at the Old Bailey and was then later transported for that offence to Van Diemen's Land, which of course now is known as Tasmania, and ended up dying later in life in a pauper institution. So first and foremost, it's important to look at convict transportation itself, so the punishment of transportation. The transportation of convicts to Australia, as many of you will know, um, began in the late 18th century. The Transportation Act of 1718 outlined what the purpose of transportation was why they um, implemented this punishment then. And one of the reasons was to deter criminals. So this is to make it feel like for the general population that it wasn't worth committing crime because of the possible punishment of transportation, which they were afraid of. So they'd weigh up whether it was worth committing the crime against the possible punishment, in this case being convict transportation. And it was felt that convict transportation was a deterrent. It was something that people would be afraid of. Um, But also it was for practical reasons as well. So they wanted to colonize territories. And in order to do that, they needed labor. And this is where convicts came in because they could be transported against their will to these territories in order to colonize them and use their labor in those areas. For example, Australia. Before um, Australia was chosen as a destination for convicts, convicts were sent to the American colonies. But this became a problem when the American colonies revolted and they would no longer accept British colonies. But after a great deal of deliberation, 
Botany Bay in Sydney, New South Wales, was chosen as the new penal colony. And accordingly, the first fleet of convicts departed for that destination in 1787. The majority of convicts were transported to New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land, now known as Tasmania. But other areas of Australia were also used, just not to the same extent. So transportation ended to New South Wales in 1841 and then ended to Van Diemen's Land in 1853. And this podcast series will focus particularly on Van Diemen's Land and those individuals who were transported there as convicts, but as I said, who later ended up living out their lives there in pauper establishments, so dying within the walls of charitable institutions. The British government saw transportation as a cheap, and as I said, as a deterrent punishment. And really speaking, those who it failed to deter, so those who committed crimes anyway, would be removed from the country and would be very unlikely to be returned after they'd been transported all the way over to Australia. Um, It'd simply be too costly and difficult for them to return home. And it was also initially believed by the British government that the removal of criminal connections, so taking these um, offenders away from their criminal connections and putting them in a new environment and giving them ready employment would also result in convict reformation. So there was some belief as well, at least initially, that this would reform these individuals and they become useful members of society. And once convicts arrived in Van Diemen's land, how convicts were disciplined there changed over time because, of course, we're talking about a 50-year period, so this is unsurprising. There was an increasing perception as well that convict transportation was becoming too easy as time went on. And this is because it was believed that the colony had become now a desirable place to live by the mid-19th century as it had now been colonised. So this idea that people back home in Britain wanted to go to Australia, so a fear that they might commit crimes in order to be transported. And this was also fueled by the perception of rising crime rates in Britain at the time. And essentially there was a belief that transportation was no longer a deterrent punishment. It wasn't harsh enough. And there were also stories of convicts writing home, telling their families of the wonderful opportunities in the new colony. And there are a number of reasons why um, convicts may have done this. Um, One, of course, being that things were better in the colonies for them. They were one of the lucky ones. Um, Also, they may not have wanted to worry their relatives back home or wanted to encourage them to come out to Australia and join them because they missed them. Of course, there are lots of reasons. Um, But essentially, the result was that the governors were ordered to increase the severity of the punishment by the mother country. And this led to the changing of the system from what was initially known as the assignment system, where convicts were assigned to free settlers in order to carry out labor for them based on their skills, or indeed lack of skills, over to what became known as the probation system. And this is where convicts had to serve a given amount of time under government labor in um, labor gangs, as they were known. And the hope was that the system would become more standardised and therefore fairer for all convicts. So whereas it was feared under the assignment system that those without skills 
no matter how what crimes they had committed, were having a worse deal than those who had skills that were wanted in the colony, but actually might have committed worse crimes. So it was um, based on skills rather than the offences that they had committed. And the idea of the probation system was essentially to prevent this, for everyone to serve a given period of time under government and then earn through good behaviour and following orders, earn their ticket of leave rather than be given it because of their skills. Both systems, the assignment system and the probation system, were criticised, but the probation system was almost universally seen as a failure due to a lack of appropriate building, appropriate staffing, um, in order to implement it properly. Nevertheless, the probation system um, carried on throughout the life of the penal colony right up until it was no longer a penal colony. And as I said, Van Diemen's Land was a penal colony for just over 50 years. It was in 1852 that the Secretary of State for the Colonies, at this time Sir John Packerton, um, advised Governor Denison that transportation to Van Diemen's Land was to cease. No further convicts would arrive after the landing of the St. Vincent ship in 1853. And certain penal institutions and penal settlements, so for example Cascades and Impression Bay, continued to hold prisoners though until all the probationers had passed through into freedom and so until they had served their sentences. And many of that old convict infrastructure as well was repurposed for the use of housing invalids and the aged, many of whom were former convicts. And as I've said, this is what this podcast will be about. Those convicts who went on to become paupers and died in pauper establishments, many of them in these former penal settlements and prison infrastructure. So as I said, this podcast series is about pauper emancipists. And the title of the podcast series and associated blog is Forgotten Convicts. Now, this isn't strictly true. Convicts haven't been forgotten in Australia. Most people know about transportation of convicts from Britain to Australia in Australia, but also in Britain and in many other countries. So this includes historians, but also keen genealogists who study particularly convict history if they have those um, ancestors in their families. So this has been studied on a micro and macro scale. It's been studied top down, so looking at those in charge, but it's also been studied from below, looking at the convicts themselves. A lot of work has gone into this area. However, the reason why I've chosen the term forgotten convicts is because of the particular subgroup that we are going to be exploring in this series. What might be termed then unsuccessful convicts. The Vandemonian statistical returns demonstrates that, broadly speaking, as the number of prisoners decreased in Van Diemen's land, the number of paupers increased. And it has been suggested by historians that many of the ageing prisoner populations were simply moving categories, so from prisoner to pauper. And it would follow then that many paupers were emancipists, so were former convicts. And this is an assumption, but it does make sense that those who didn't form new families in the colonies or take their families over, and many men in particular did not marry in the colonies, 
would be more likely to end up in pauper establishments because they simply didn't have this extended family network in their new colony. So they had nowhere else to turn when they could no longer provide for themselves. And while this, what might be termed a social dislocation argument, makes sense, it's logical, um, the extent of the relationship hasn't been fully explored. And this research that I'm doing has begun to explore the records of pauper and invalid establishments. So including um, Brickfield's pauper establishment, Port Arthur, and the Newtown Charitable Establishment, in order to try and uncover the emancipists who are entering and dying within their walls. And these emancipists will then be traced back through their lives to uncover where they came from. So I'll be using both criminal and non-criminal records so crime records, civil records, newspapers, in order to look at the punishments, but also the crimes, the familial lives, the employment and deaths of those individuals. And this will allow us to explore together how and why these pauper emancipists ended up dying in these um, charitable institutions, these pauper establishments. And what this will be doing is really building of the work of the likes of um, historians such as Piper and Hargraves who looked at these institutions in some great detail. And I'll be taking that and expanding on it by looking at the life courses of those who ended up in the institutions and pulling together those criminal and non-criminal records in order to get a broader picture of the lives of those within the institutions. By the late 1850s, pauper or charitable institutions for the aged and the invalid, so those who couldn't um, provide for themselves on the outside, were opened in both Launceston and the Hobart area. So, for example, in Launceston, you had the Imperial Depot at Impression Bay. And over in Hobart, there was the Newtown Charitable Institution, which opened in 1874. The standard of accommodation in these institutions varied quite wildly. And how they were run, of course, also changed over time, even within individual institutions, which again, is not that surprising. Today, we'll only be looking at one example but more details of other institutions will be explored throughout this series. So we'll be popping in on other institutions and having a look at some of the details as we go along. The focus today will be Cascades Invalid Depot. And Cascades had been used to house female prisoners and was originally known as the female factory. So Cascades Female Factory, essentially because female convicts were housed there to undertake labour. And the space was now reallocated from a convict prison for females to become a place to house invalids and paupers. As historian Piper stated, this relocating of convict architecture for paupers brought under one roof poverty, age, infirmity and crime, making them inextricably linked. Another historian, Hargraves, noted that life in this particular depot was harsh, regimented and characterised by boredom. And this is certainly evidenced um, through the regulations which residents were subject to. So essentially, all residents were expected to work unless they were confirmed as being seriously indisposed by the medical officer. 
initially, some could work outside of the institution um, to earn their keep. But residents couldn't simply leave the institution whenever they wanted. After admittance, they had to remain for a given period um, within the institution or until the medical officer sanctioned their release, which would be based on their ability to earn their keep on the outside. So they'd have to show that they were able to look after themselves and earn enough money to feed and house themselves. They were not convicts or prisoners technically, but they were held against their will um, within these institutions. As well as having to work, residents also had to follow the rules. As I said, there were regulations. Um, and this included not drinking and also having to give up their private property upon entry. And not following these rules could lead to certain punishments. Um, for example, up to 48 days in close confinement. However, if they broke more serious rules, um, such as absconding or escaping from the institution without permission, or giving false information, or refusing to be removed to another institution, or refusing to carry out labour, they could be punished with solitary confinement for up to seven days, or to be imprisoned in the jail. And this could be with or without hard labour for up to a month. So quite serious punishments for not following these regulations. So while these individuals may not have ended up in these institutions because they were prisoners, they could end up being a prisoner due to not following the rules or the regulations within the establishments themselves. For destroying um, property in the institution, they could get up to three months imprisonment. One of the most common punishments, though, was the removal of privileges, such as tobacco. So they had a tobacco allowance that could be removed. Um, and this could be done for simply not listening to the silence bell, so talking after the bell had been rung in the evening, or for not keeping their person clean, so not washing um, or being clean enough to the standard that they were set. But it's evident, though, that the rules were frequently broken. So a notebook from the head warder of Cascades recounted frequent um, instances of intoxication. So they were getting alcohol as well as assaults between inmates. So they fought amongst themselves as well. So they didn't always follow the rules despite quite harsh punishments. However, for those who did follow um, the rules and regulations, and you tend to hear less about those because they behaved, they were less likely to be documented. Um, but it was possible for those who followed the rules to have seven days leave. Um, but these freedoms were curtailed over time. So things did become stricter over time. And there was also an attempt for those well-behaved to provide activities. Approved reading materials, for example, were provided, but only during fixed hours. So still regulated. And public readings in the dormitories, it states in the regulations, were permitted, but only where practical. So it's difficult to know how often this actually occurred. Importantly, though, these residents, these paupers who were in these institutions, weren't without their agency. And the next episode, we'll be exploring how the rules and regulations were circumvented by these women and these men, and the institutions 
how they use these institutions to their own advantage to a certain extent. So we'll be exploring some of the pushback then by the residents, the inmates in these institutions against the rules and regulations forced upon them. So while this episode is already crammed in a fair amount, I didn't want to finish without at least introducing one case study, even if that was very briefly. So I've chosen a fairly typical pauper emancipist to begin with, but as the episodes go on, we look at some more extraordinary cases. But I wanted you to meet a fairly typical pauper emancipist by the name of Frederick Oddy. Frederick was born in approximately um, 1822 in St. Luke's, London. And Frederick first came to the attention of the criminal justice system when he was convicted at the Old Bailey, so the Central Criminal Court in London, for obtaining goods by false pretenses. So essentially stealing goods by tricking someone. Um, He pleaded guilty to this offence and he was confined for four months as a result. He also pled guilty to stealing a watch worth £2 and was given another four months. Frederick was also charged with another offence, that being stealing a gelding, which was a castrated horse. And this horse was worth £6, so that's quite a lot of money. However, no bill was found and he was discharged, so he wasn't found guilty of that. However, he was brought before the Old Bailey again in September 1844, and this again was for stealing another watch. This time, however, he had a much harsher punishment. He was sentenced to seven years transportation. He was held at Millbank Prison before being transported. So while he was awaiting the convict ship, the Mount Stuart Elphinstone was the convict ship he was transported from. And he arrived in Van Diemen's Land in June 1845. The ship's surgeon superintendent, so the authority in charge of the convict's health and their um, behaviour, So the ship's surgeon superintendent described Frederick as good on the voyage over. However, he was also ill on the voyage over as well. So in February 1845, um, it states that he had diarrhea, but he was fitted with a truss after four days and discharged. He was ill again, though, in April with rheumatism, and he was only discharged cured after approximately a month and a half. So all in all, it seems that the journey over to Australia wasn't a very pleasant one for Frederick then. As well as this information on his behaviour and his health, we also have what is known as a description list. And this is essentially describing what the convict looks like. And they had this because obviously at this time they didn't have photographs. So they wanted to be able to keep track of their convicts Um while they were under sentence and while they were in the colony. So if they committed further offences, they could track them back to their former offences. So in Frederick's description list, he's described as being five foot three inches, as being pock-pitted, as being approximately 22 years of age um, at the time that he was transported. And he could also both read and write. And he's described as being a groom in his transportation record. So that was his employment. However, 
If we look at some other criminal records of Frederick Ardy, so his PECOM records, which are the prison license records from Millbank, he's described actually as a horse dealer. So there's some slight discrepancy. So perhaps he did both employments at different times, both obviously related. And I think this shows the importance of bringing all these different records together to see a fuller picture of these offenders, where there's different information in different records. He was certainly assigned while under sentence at different points. For example, he was assigned twice for a period of three months at a rate of £9 payment, and that's fairly um, typical for a convict at that time. In June 1851, he had a year placement at £12, which is slightly above average. And we're also fortunate to have information on his offending behaviour in the colony within his conduct records. That's one of the criminal transportation records. Most of these offences for Frederick were status offences. So those offences or Um, behaviours which wouldn't have resulted in punishment had he been a free person. So, for example, being absent or misconducting himself. Um, For these offences, these status offences, he was imprisoned for very short periods of time. However, he did commit larceny under the value of £5, and this did result in imprisonment with hard labour. But this was also in chains, so a slightly more harsh punishment than for a worse crime. What is more, he was at this time at the coal mines. So the coal mines was one of the harsher places to be sent for labour as a convict. After this, he absconded on three different occasions. The first time he was imprisoned for four months with hard labour, then for a period of six months. And the last occasion that he absconded in 1850, this resulted in a much harsher sentence. His original sentence of transportation was extended by a period of six months, so added on to his seven years transportation. And it was further recommended in the conduct record that he be sent to a penal settlement. So this is rather than living in the community and being assigned to a free settler, a penal settlement, again, a a harsher... um, place for convicts to be sent because there were more restrictions, more regulations, and as a result, less freedoms. Nevertheless, Frederick earned his ticket of leave, so his right to work on his own account and have increasing freedoms in October 1851, and was finally given his certificate of freedom, so at this point he was free of servitude, in May 1852. Here he really slips out of the records until he later offends in old age. So there's a period of time where we cannot find him. But as I said, he did then offend in old age and this reached the police gazettes. So in June 1881, he was charged with being idle and disorderly in Bothwell and given one month imprisonment. At this point, he was described as being aged 57 and is being born in 1824, which is about right. He's also described as being free by servitude, so meaning he was a former convict and emancipist, and as being slightly pock-pitted in the face. So similar description there, of course, as we had in the description list on his transportation over. The Gazette also noted, though, that he was under medical observation, so he was clearly ill at this point. 
It was in the 80s, um, the 1880s, that Frederick seems to have entered the charitable system as well. So he starts to appear in those records. And it's known he stayed in Newtown Charitable Establishment um, from July to November 1881. And it's also recorded in those records that he was at Newtown Charitable Establishment when he died in January 1885. At this point, he's described as having been born in 1816 and that he was 68 years of age, that he had worked as a groom and he had also been classified as an invalid. He died of chronic diarrhoea, according to um, the death records, And this is an illness, actually, which he suffered from on the voyage over way back in his 20s. He was buried as a pauper in a pauper's grave, number 444. Obviously, this is only one um, former convict, one pauper emancipist. We'll be looking at more examples in each episode as we go along and looking at their different life paths. So coming up in the next episode, um, we'll be looking at inmate agency and the complaints these men and women made while in the institutions and how the authorities responded to those complaints, responded to the breaking of regulations. As with most inmates in institutions in different periods of time in different countries, these paupers were subject to control measures and their freedoms were impinged on to different extents. However, they didn't take it lying down. They snuck letters out and alcohol into the institutions, all to suit their own needs. And these inmates expressed their displeasure, they fought back, they broke rules and they escaped. So next time we'll be exploring this pauper agency and how they expressed it and how the authorities responded to it. So until next time, keep safe and well and thank you for listening to Forgotten Convicts with Emma Watkins.